What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 29B of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm very pleased to be speaking with you today. I want to start with a quick announcement. I will be at the Fall Azure meeting down in New Orleans this week. I'm hosting a happy hour for Anesthesia Success on Thursday evening, and I would love to see you there. I'm going to post the link to the invite in the show notes here. We did one of these meetups in Orlando at ASA uh, last month, and it was awesome getting to meet some of you guys. So I'd love to meet you if you're going to be down in New Orleans for ASRA. Speaking of ASA, uh, that whole conference in October was really excellent. Had a chance to be down there. I connected with some old friends, made some new ones. That was a ton of fun. Uh, While I was there, I learned a lot of great things about anesthesiologist compensation, business hurdles faced by solo practitioners, as well as some of the unique challenges faced by different institutional models in anesthesia, whether it's a large private group, a smaller private group, or an academic center. And I always find the implications for understanding the entity for whom you're working as an anesthesiologist, understanding that and the unique incentives and challenges of whatever that model is, will, will have a massive impact on your career, as well as you know your work environment, the flexibility, the compensation of the job, etc. And this is one of the reasons that I always harp on this on this show, and why I will continue to do so, is that I always see lots of physicians having to make career decisions moving between these silos, and they, in many cases, have no idea what's on the other side. And why would you, especially as a resident or fellow, you come up through academics, often the, the private practice world um, is, is sort of a, a mystery, and you just haven't had exposure to that. So I'm committed to, on this show, trying to bring content to break down these barriers to get you an idea of what you're getting into in all these different practice models and understanding what it means for you as a clinician and as a professional. Uh, And that's one of the reasons I love ASA is getting this type of exposure is really excellent. And that leads us to this week's guest, Dr. Angela Edwards. I actually spoke with Angie a couple months ago, and she was doing an interview later in this series which we recorded uh, a little while back about careers in academic anesthesia. But I saw her at ASA, and she was kind enough to do this bonus episode to talk about some insider tips for how to get work accepted to the national conference. There's a lot of different options for format, different content tracks, and lots of things that's helpful to know from an insider uh, while you're submitting a proposal. And in addition, she was kind enough to type up six pages of very detailed notes as far as presenting you with everything that you need to know in order to understand the current lay of the land with regards to submitting work to the national conference and what you can do to have the highest likelihood of getting things accepted. So a special giveaway, you can get that at anesthesiasuccess.com slash 29B. Uh, That's the episode number 29B. You can get the free download there in the show notes. So thanks for joining us today. And as always, thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia Success Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. We've got a bonus episode for ASA 2019 coming to your eardrums today. I am pleased to be joined by Dr. Angela Edwards. Uh, Angie is uh, the president of the Society for Perioperative Assessment and Quality Improvement, as well as an associate professor of anesthesiology at Wake Forest Baptist Health. I'm very pleased to have Angie here with us today. We're going to talk about what is ASA? Why does it matter as far as the national conference goes? If you want to submit something, if you want to get on the national stage and move your field forward, how do we do it? So Angie, thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So it was a pleasure seeing you a couple of weeks ago at ASA. I know I really enjoyed the conference. I like to go for the sort of the uh, the business end of things, practice management, stuff like that. And I know I had a few sessions that I really enjoyed. How, how did the conference go for you? Oh, I loved it. I, I think this is a great meeting. It's 
And again, you go for different purposes. There are several different tracks, depending upon your interest. I was excited to see you there, a little surprised, because, you know, in my mind, this is a CME meeting. But I, I so I guess I underappreciate that, you know, there's so many reasons to be there between um, our industry partners looking at the latest technologies, CME looking for, you know, an update in, you know, what's new in the world of your area of anesthesia, because there's so many different tracks. Mm -hmm. um, and then the business side of things, there's a, there's a lot to be gained in going to the meeting, just, just in terms of general interest. Yeah, absolutely. So you've obviously had a long time in your career in academic medicine in navigating what does it mean to present? What does it mean to collaborate professionally with physicians across America? And I'm really looking forward to having you unpack for us. Uh, what does it look like to build a career in academic anesthesia? <laughs> uh, I'm not, that's, that makes me sound so old. I don't feel like I'm there yet. Um, <laughs> so let, just to start with general networking at the um, at any meeting, and I think it, this goes for both ASA um, IARS, some of the, the, that's the International Anesthesia Research Society, larger meetings, and even your smaller subspecialty society meetings, um, you know, just, just off the top of my head, the ASRA meeting, SOAP meeting, and then, you know, from our perioperative medicine summit meeting, it depends upon, you know, where your area of interest is. I think that's the place to start generally in building your career topic. Um, for the ASA itself, it, it can be if, if you're not if you haven't picked an area that is of interest and studied it a little bit ahead of time, it can seem intimidating um, because I think you walk in and you've got a you've got an area with you know probably over ten thousand vendors. You've got fourteen thousand anesthesia anesthesia professionals all over navigating a, a giant forum. So it's it can be a little overwhelming if if you're not ready for that up front, whereas some of the smaller society meetings are a great way to get started. Um, and uh, you know, without you know, sounding um, too directive, the, just starting out with the perioperative medicine summit that's in March, we, we host another February and March every year. It's a great forum for those who are in, interested in preoperative assessment and perioperative medicine. Um, same thing with SOAP and same thing with ASRA. But in terms of, you know, going to these meetings, it's a great opportunity to just physically get connected with people. You know, we started this way before the era of social media, podcasting or any way to, you know, I just we just barely had email. And so you go to these meetings for both CME, which you couldn't get online, and you'd go to the meetings to meet people if you were lucky enough to do so and, and listen to some um, uh, professional um, presentations about the latest information. If you didn't get a chance to stay up to date on the latest literature, that's what, that's sort of how it all started. So, you know, if I think back to 2006, 2007, when I first started going to meetings and then the ASA back in 2010 and, and the perioperative medicine summit about that same time frame, that's where it started. And since that time, it just a mere, you know, almost 10 years now, we've got access to stay connected through social media. So if if you're on Twitter, you can even look back at the ASA Lifeline, the ASA um, uh, Twitter podcast and take a, look, take a look at the hashtag ANES19 conversation. And you'll see all of the topics that come up and you'll get a little preview of the meeting. And if you're not, then go to the meeting. It's a great way to get started. Um, so again, professionally staying connected, continuing med medical education, um, and if, as a medical student and resident, there are now tracks just for medical students and residents and fellows who both can obtain CME and get connected with future programs or um, potential employers and partners. 
Yeah, can you uh, can you expand on that a little bit? So if I'm a resident and I'm thinking about going to ASA, you know, I know there's like the, there's that the fellowship meet and greet with the fellowship directors. There's also uh, there was an employee employment fair this year, I think, for the first time at ASA. Talk a little bit about some of the opportunities there. So um, these are all new since I came out of residency. So I'll have to sort of just extrapolate on what I've heard from my friends who are both residency program directors. There's this, there's a big meet and greet. All the residency programs host a table or a booth, and it's an opportunity to come by and look at the program, actually meet people before you would otherwise have to travel and decide if that's a place you want to interview. And so for medical students, who were interested in anesthesiology to come and actually meet people beforehand or even potentially see if there's an opportunity for a um, an away rotation. It's, it's just a tremendous opportunity that we haven't had in the past. Same thing for residents if you're looking at fellowship programs. And then again, to look at potential partners. You know, if you're looking at thinking about academics or even in private practice, there's a way to connect um, at every at every registration for ASA, which starts in June, the registration opens, you can scan online to see what opportunities are available for social connections and professional connections. And that sort of, it, they, they increase in numbers throughout, I guess, the next three months until the ASA comes up. Most of those, I think, happen in different areas. And you can see that the ASA does a beautiful job of trying to keep people connected. Um, through their app and through there's a small booklet you pick up at registration when you're physically there on site as well as just the online mechanisms beforehand. Yeah, that's something that I appreciate as an outsider, relative outsider, not a physician coming in and saying like, I want to do the like the residents and fellows track and the practice management track. And I can just click on those buttons in the app and it lays out all the sessions that are relevant, which is really, really helpful. And even better, if you're looking for somebody specific that you want to meet, who might be speaking, you can search on that person and find out where they'll be at what particular time and come up and introduce yourself. We did have that a couple of times too. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious to know your personal experience. If you think back to maybe the first time or two that you were getting up on stage for something that you had researched or you're on a panel, you know, what went into getting to that point and what was, what was that experience like for you? It was a very, it was an interesting opportunity that came up through the perioperative medicine group. Um, I can tell you what, I had a sponsor. Um, I was fortunate enough to have great mentors and great sponsors who basically put my name forward and put me on a panel. And that's how it started. And there was a lot of coaching during the course of the year. It was a topic that was not anywhere in my wheelhouse, if you will. It was very remote. It, it was a presentation that had actually been given a couple of years before and that was updated and fairly um, pertinent in that particular era. And it was about um, um, sort of realigning the um, perioperative, um, perisurgical episode. I really honestly didn't know a whole lot about it. Um, when I started, so I, you know, plugged away on my own. And then my mentor and sponsor said, Hey, here's a slide deck. <laughs> this is how this works. And honestly, it just, it flowed. It was, you know, so you stumble a little bit, I think at first, um, you have to embrace the uncomfortable yeah. and quite frankly, thinking back about it, the true key to success was having a senior faculty member to uh, put you forward. And again, that was just by virtue of stepping into an area that was my area of expertise at the time and um, just saying yes. So I think probably one of the biggest piece of advice if I give anybody on how to get started is to be willing, be flexible and say yes 
sort of embrace the opportunity that comes forward and comes your way because, um, you know, it may not come back. Right. <laughs> so um, in, in, uh, it's important too. And now that I have been in this for a few years to also get engaged with a subcommittee. So it helps to have sponsorship from a subcommittee or a senior faculty member who's presented at the ASA. Um, it helps to be engaged with a specific clinical track. And there are so many different clinical tracks and um, keywords associated with those clinical tracks and components within those tracks that if you can look at that online or, you know, in the show notes and see what fits, where your talk or your presentation would be best suited, that's an easy place for um, you to start your submission. And then it goes straight to that review committee who can take a look and decide if that's a good fit for them. And so it, it and I think, Part of the other thing to that too is depending upon how you choose to submit, don't be discouraged if your submission is rejected the first time. There are submissions that have been um, recent, I guess, proposals resubmitted in a different format year after year and finally accepted at year three. Hmm. Because it just so happens that with that particular subcommittee at that particular time, it fits well. Right. So don't get discouraged the first time around and then maybe spin it a different way, you know, different year brings different interests. Yeah. So maybe break down for us if somebody's interested in getting involved or presenting for the first time, what are the different tiers of like involvement or um, like, I'm sure, you know, you could do a poster presentation. That's a lower barrier to entry, or maybe something that involves you being on a panel or being on a stage, giving a talk. I don't even know. Is that something that residents can do and what the, what's involved with that? And then as you move into, you know, being an attending, obviously, and doing more research, then those opportunities open up to greater degree. You know, I, I think there are, and you said it well, there are tiers of engagement. Um, I think first, get started, find an area that interests you. So, and again, find a, find a mentor, find a sponsor, find a subcommittee. Um, there, if you look online at the, um, the ASA website, there are several um, tracks and clinical areas. So start there and figure out which area your topic fits into. So again, pick a topic. Probably the easiest way to get started is a medically challenging case. So for a medical student or resident or fellow, uh, medically challenging cases are those complex um, cases that require a lot of extra involvement, extra engagement, um, you know, in a quick one-liner. It's, it's those cases, those zebras that come up that you you have to really think twice about how to handle, how to manage. And there, there's usually limited management options. And so it's worthy of presentation. And it might be then worry for, worthy of publication um, and peer review. Um, abstracts are an easy way to, to get involved too. And you can do an abstract submission. Those, those deadlines are a little bit later. So they're not so pressing. They're not November 15th. <laughs> the medically challenging cases and abstracts are much later. And those usually come, PBLDs are December to February. You'll Everybody sees something in the monitor usually about that time, which is a nice description. You can look at that online. And what's the PBLD? Oh, the problem-based learning discussion. Yeah. So um, the problem-based learning discussions are, if you think about small round table, 12 people sitting around a round table talking about a case, and it's about 45-minute discussion that's uh, clear goals and objectives um, represented. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. Rip. Um, the problem-based learning discussions are um, usually involve a case, an interesting hypothetical patient, teaching points, controversies, you know, conflicts that might occur in management. And they usually have to be actively relevant to clinical practice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it, you have to think about how that dilemma, how dilemmas were solved, how decisions are made and provide evidence behind it. So it's a nice guided round table discussion. And 
quite frankly, those are, and you can be an attending um, a fellow resident and present these. There's about a 75% acceptance rate mm. on the problem-based learning discussions. Okay. Insider tip here, guys. (laughs) Great place to start, PBLDs. (laughs) It is a great place to start. I I wrote a few of those and almost every meeting now, these are very popular because they're more intimate than a panel discussion or an on-stage presentation where you're at a table with 12 other people um, and you can actually sit and have a conversation about a case. So these are fun. I yeah. really enjoy those. I've enjoyed those um, as well. I've actually been to a few of those pertaining to like practice management, contract negotiation types of things. And that's been really okay. interesting to get other people's perspective around the table, not just the presenters. I really like that dynamic oh, yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it's a great way to get started. And again, those are when you present um, a PBLD at really any meeting, it's usually presented twice. So it's, you have two opportunities to present and that's two things on your CV or resume that you can put forward. Um, so between the abstracts, um, which are also a little bit later, I think those that deadline is somewhere between uh, March and April for the scientific abstracts. Um, and the problem-based learning sessions are February and medically challenging cases are even later. That's May. That's a great way to get started. Just get your feet wet, um, get comfortable with the process, present at a at an international meeting, really. It's a very large international meeting. Um, that, that's a great way to get started and kind of get your foot in the door. And those are, um, it's just, a, it's, a, it's that'd be my first step. Second tier, I think, would be if you're looking to actually speak in front of an audience. And with that one, again, that's where it's nice to get engaged with a group. So if we're talking about a panel discussion, which could be an hour-long panel discussion, these new forms of panel discussions, which are called snap talks, those are short 10-minute presentations with about four to five additional speakers, um, short case-based quick reviews of fundamental topics, um, two years ago, there were three. This year, there were 23, I think. Um, snap Talks, right. Very popular. And I think that speaks to our, you know, our quick TED Talk world. Everybody wants everything in 10 minutes. And so give me what you can in 10 minutes. And then let me th- switch gears and think about another topic relevant to my same track, but just something different because 10 minutes is all you're going to get. <laughs> and, and at the end of that snap talk, there's a time for questions, which again, makes it a little bit smaller, more intimate. Same thing with panel discussions. Um, that's usually probably two or three speakers plus a moderator. You've got uh, opportunity for question and answers afterwards. And now we're talking about putting those into two parts. So if it's, if it's worthy of 120 minutes where we used to have a 120 minute or 90 minute panel session, it's now broken down into two smaller parts. You have a part one and part two. Um, larger refresher course lectures, you'll see those listed as RCLs in the book. Those are usually one presentation by one speaker that addresses kind of a basic science issue that's important to the practice of anesthesiology, but it concentrates on um, clinical applications of knowledge. And it's usually a senior presenter, someone who's been presenting at the ASA for many years, um, someone who's been in senior leadership. Historically, that's what it's been, but that's not to discourage anyone from presenting or put, putting forth a proposal for an RCL. Um, the ASA is always open to new opportunities. Um, and the other thing I will say for the educational sessions, these proposals that I mentioned, the SNAP talks, the panels, the RCLs, the clinical forums, which are a case-based presentation, you need diversity on those panels. And I can't emphasize that enough. And that's diversity of institutions, diversity of people, that's diversity all the way around. Um, it, the um, ASA, the um, uh, annual meeting 
Oversight Committee, and you'll hear me refer to them as AMHOC, is really um, enthusiastic about the diversity on panels. Um, and so a way to ensure success is to make certain that all of your speakers are from different institutions and that you have some diversity on your panels. Um, so that quick little plug for that. Great. How to be successful More good insider one. info. Yeah. And so there's also hands-on workshops. Those you'll see listed in the book or listed on the um, program as you've got lots of people from one institution teaching possibly regional, um, ultrasound, any other man of hands-on technique. And now they're doing interactive tutorials, which are almost PBLDs, mm -hmm. problem-based learning discussions, but they are interactive with a um, smaller group. And it's almost a hybrid, I think, of a workshop and a problem-based learning discussion. So you've got to do something hands-on, materials involved. Um, again, just a new way to learn new information. Cool. So maybe let's take one of these things that you just shared and zoom in a little bit on it and, and walk okay. the process from beginning to end. So say there was a, a medically challenging case that I, want, I was interested in presenting at ASA 20. How would I, uh, what do I need to do in order to, to get that presented by the deadline in the spring? First of all, come up with a really good case. Think of um, probably three or four ways that it could be managed. See where the evidence is behind it. What's currently in the literature to support the way you managed it or an alternative way, and then put it in a poster format. Describe the case, you know, always with a brief introduction. Describe the case itself, potentially questions that came up. Um, images are very popular because these are presented on electronic boards, not the old poster format that you roll out and you've got to put in a little scroll to you know, carry on the air, airplane with you. Yeah. Um, they're all submitted electronically. So it's all on the electronic boards and it's literally just a poster presentation that historically is done in a PowerPoint format. When I did these, I just did it on a PowerPoint format, created things um, to fit in the form that the ASA wanted and presented it that way. I would run it by some senior faculty, see what they say. Have a, Again, having a senior faculty member on it is tremendously helpful because you get some mentorship in your presentation, which will be an oral presentation, um, and also content to make sure your content is um, appropriate for submission. Sure. Can you give a can you give us an example of some things you've done in the past that have been successful in uh, getting research accepted? When you're thinking of what you want to present and how you want to present, the track you're looking for, um, probably one of my best, best success stories was getting advice from senior members and choosing people on the panel who were who had that area of expertise. So maybe a senior person, someone intermediate in terms of experience, and then myself, for example, who would have been more junior, uh, submitting mm -hmm. that proposal. We, in the perioperative medicine world, I can tell you where our, our successes have been. We've, um, we tend to get online with each other very early through email, uh, a series of um, conversations and share people across institutions, if you will, to come up with a diverse panel, a good topic, something that is in our field of expertise. And again, that's perioperative medicine. It could be regional, it could be pain. Um, general anesthesia fundamental topics are fantastic. Um, even healthcare economics is sort of the new one. And I think that's gonna be a hot topic for our next um, for our next ASA. It's just my speculation, not what I know. Um, <laughs> um, so I think, Again, back to what I said earlier with um, finding a subcommittee and a track and a single faculty member and mm -hmm. making sure your panel is diverse and clinically relevant to the times. 
that's that's probably the best way to make sure it's successful and then if it's not try try again what else did you add as far as important things to know as part of this process you know, when you look at the numbers of opportunities to participate in this annual meeting or any annual meeting, um, you probably do have to be a member of that society. So one of the things that's important to remember is that you have to be a member of the ASA to submit a panel or be part of the ASA. There are guests who can be part of your panel, um, but they're pretty selective about having guests. Um, most everyone is either a, sort of an international member of the, a of the ASA, but in some capacity, some connection to the ASA. Um, start where you're comfortable. I always encourage people to um, find their niche and sort of move forward. And if if you are be brave enough to say yes in the event that it's it's out of your comfort zone a little bit, but just get started. There are so many. Uh, I think I've listed a couple in the notes in terms of ambulatory, cardiac, critical care, geriatric. The fundamentals track is is huge. And there's, there are a lot of submissions to that. You know, if you know some folks within those tracks, ask them, you know, now we're given hours to fill um, with any different type of submission. And that's, again, that's anything from a problem-based learning discussion panel, um, point counterpoint, which is sort of a, a, a debate, if you will. Each one of these tracks has a certain amount of hours to fill. And it's my understanding that the annual meeting oversight committee will look at all submissions that have gone through those tracks and been um, accepted by those subcommittees. The annual oversight committee looks again at all the proposals put forth to see how to best create, how to best develop the meeting for that particular year. So it, it goes through a lot of different channels before the final meeting is put together. So, like I said, the fundamentals track is a big one. I don't know how many hours they have, but I think everybody thinks theirs is part of fundamental for anesthesiologists to submit to fundamentals. Rethink that, if you will. Is there a way that you can send it to maybe a geriatric anesthesia track or cardiac? Cardiac's big too, or ambulatory or professional issues. And that's probably where you look for most of your information in the sessions you wanted to attend is going through professional issues. Um, so think about the track that you're submitting to. Um, and again, pay attention to deadlines. They're pretty hard and fast. Those, those don't budge. Well, Dr. Angela Edwards, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for giving us this insider view of how to successfully submit stuff to be uh, accepted for a presentation at the ASA and other meetings. And uh, it's, it's been a pleasure been speaking pleasure. with you today. Thank you for having me. I hope, it's, I hope you found it helpful. And I hope it's, uh, it makes sense. Sometimes um, talking about all these different submissions can sound like a big word salad almost um, and intimidating. But, but it really is easier than, than you would think. And I just would encourage anyone and everyone to get started. Um, find something that interests you and just, just work on that submission. Hey, Justin here. This may shock you to learn, but I am actually not a full-time podcaster. I also run a financial planning company called Quantify Planning, where I work closely with anesthesia and pain docs to build and implement customized financial plans. If you're interested in working with a financial planner who knows many of the ins and outs of your profession, shoot me an email or head on over to quantifyplanning.com for more information. If you're a resident or fellow, I can also offer you a free student loan analysis if you're interested, but there might be a waiting list, so check out the link over there to see. If you're interested in learning more about the topics we discussed today, head over to anesthesiasuccess.com 
to join our community of residents and attendings and others to ask a question or get more free resources. If and only if you like this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. Thank you very much for listening to the Anesthesia Success Podcast.